This is Judaism Unbound, episode 28, The Secret Book of Kings. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And we're here today following up on last week's interview with Professor Richard Elliott Friedman, the author of Who Wrote the Bible, where we started to look at the Bible as, I would say, the fundamental, the earliest, the most consequential work of Jewish art that there's ever been, arguably. Today we're continuing on that track by looking at a piece of contemporary art that itself looks at the Bible. And that's a book called The Secret Book of Kings, which I've been very involved in bringing to publication and which we've been involved in getting the word out about. There's a website, www.secretbookofkings.com, that I think you can find a lot of interesting information about the book there. And um, today's episode is somewhat unusual for a couple of reasons relating to that book. Number one is that the episode is being released a few days early, and that's because the book is being published today. So we thought that it would be great if people could just download the book on Kindle if they were so inclined right after listening to this episode. So we wanted to release it early. And the second reason is that today, Lex is going to be taking over sole duties of interviewing. And the reason for that is that the person he's going to be interviewing is me, because I was very involved and I've been very involved for the last three years or so in bringing this book to publication in English and for American audiences. And we wanted to have a chance to discuss why I thought that book was important and why we've gotten involved with it as an organization. And in many ways, we really see this as as a major project of Judaism Unbound, that we are able to bring this book to English-speaking audiences. And we're really excited to be able to talk a little bit about it today. And we're super excited, I'm super excited, that after three years of hard work, it's finally being published today. So, Lex, uh, I would like to turn things over to you. All right. So imagine me as your Dan and imagine Dan as, as your guest as we, as we play some role reversal here on Judaism Unbound. Um, just to clarify, uh, Dan didn't mention this, but the author of the book is named Yochi Brandis and has written a number of other books um, that have been successful in Israel and which, who knows, one day could hopefully be translated into English as well. And we should note that the reason why she's not a guest on our show today is uh, because she doesn't really speak English. Exactly. Um, so we are doing our best to be ambassadors of the secret book of Kings of, as Dan mentioned in Hebrew, the third book of Kings into the English language. So, uh, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lex. It's great to be here. <laughs> All right. So I guess to start off, I'm curious if you could just walk us through what the book is about. I mean, we have a sense that it relates in general to the biblical books of Kings, but what's, what's the secret book of Kings all about? Yeah, well, first I wanted to mention, by the way, I'm also, I'm a big fan of the show, so it's a, it's a real thrill to be on. <laughs> we want to be careful not to uh, give too many spoilers on the, on the show, but in broad strokes, the book is essentially, I would say, a retelling of the stories, primarily the stories of King David and King Saul, the first two kings of Israel in the Bible. Uh, actually, first the first king was King Saul, and the second king was King David. Although the truth is, it's not quite the second king, but it's a it's a complicated uh, story there, just part of what's talked about <laughs> in the book. But basically, um, the idea is that the book essentially retells those stories, which are actually one of the most highly developed stories in the entire Bible. The the those stories are are in the book of Samuel primarily. And really, you know, it's one of the most uh, complex and fully developed narratives in the entire Bible. A lot of Bible stories are, are short. This is a very, very long one. And the um, 
the book also covers some of the material that's um, also in the first book of Kings in the Bible. And by implication, it impacts the entire way that we look at the Bible. And, and I think that this really connects a lot to our conversation last week with Richard Elliott Friedman, because in order to really sort of fully understand what this book is doing, you, you should understand that the Bible is essentially written from the perspective of the House of David, as the sort of and the southern kingdom of Judah, um, right? That the Bible, much of the Bible, most of the Bible, uh, the way that Richard Elliott Friedman talks about who wrote it and when and why, was written um, after the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BCE. So really, in a way, the Bible is a paradigmatic story of the victors write history, right? The survivors, in this case, write history. And so um, the Bible is very much written from and takes the perspective of the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, to some extent at the expense of the northern kingdom of Israel, which is often written about as having, quote, done evil in the sight of God, and, you know, all sorts of other kind of negative things are said about the northern kingdom. And in a sense, this book is coming in to take the reverse perspective and to say, what if the house of Saul wrote the story? What if the northern kingdom was the place where the stories were written? And that's not quite what the book is about, but that's essentially a, a lens through which you can see it. And um, and I think that's that's really exciting and really interesting. And I, and I think that it um, does a couple of things. One is that it really shows what we mean when we talk about the Bible as a work of art, right? With a perspective, with a reason for having been created, with a um, with a, a, a an artistic purpose, a political purpose. Uh, and what if those purposes were were different? And and what if the Bible was narrated by different narrators? How would they see the same stories in in a different way? Great. Um. So, what what was the process that? that led you to a place where you wanted to help bring this to the United States? I mean, there are lots of works of Israeli literature that that succeed in the Israeli marketplace and, and that could conceivably be translated into English. What is it about this particular book that you think has the potential to really be uh, interesting and compelling for Americans as well as Israelis who have already read it? Well, I'll start with a story about yeah how it sort of came to be that that I, I decided that I want to do this. Um, really, it was I think it was about three years ago or so, and it was really at the beginning of some of the work which has ultimately translated itself into our podcast as as our initial or one of our initial pieces that we're putting out into the world. And actually, I sort of see this book in a way as the second major piece that we're putting out into the world. Um, and what was going on was that I was thinking really hard about what. Jewish innovation would look like. And I was thinking about, you know, how could we even be more serious about it? What, what would we need? What would be the philosophy behind a really serious set of innovations or a completely different approach to Judaism? And one of the pieces that was dominant in my thinking was that people don't have a sense of authenticity about that. They kind of don't think that you're allowed to um, play with Judaism. And as, as I was thinking about that, I felt like, well, we need a new mythology, right? We need a new way to tell our old stories that would show that we really do have a tradition, which I believed and continue to believe that we actually do have this tradition of really playing around with the material a lot. But somehow we have a story that we've told ourselves over the last few thousand years that, that that's not what we do, that we actually have great fidelity to this, you know, exact way of thinking and doing for so many years. And um, I, I had a conversation with my sister where I said to her, you know, wouldn't it be great 
if somebody wrote a novel about the northern kingdom of Israel and that in that novel, the northern kingdom would be seen as the good kingdom and the one that really generated a lot of the core ideas of Judaism and that was accidentally, you know, was destroyed by the Assyrians, not because they did evil in the sight of God, but because they were closer to Assyria. And so they were the first to go. Right. And, um, and, and, and something like that. And that story could really be told because, you know, I think that story is really there. And my sister said to me, my sister lives in Israel, and she said, um, oh, there actually is such a novel. Um, it, it just came out pretty recently, and it was a huge bestseller here in Israel, and it's called Malachim Gimel, the secret book of, King, uh, sorry, the third book of Kings. And, um, and so I read it. So I, I thought it was a really incredible book, told a really compelling story, really did get at that point that I was trying to make that there are suppressed strains of Jewish, the Jewish story, um, whether they're suppressed intentionally for political reasons or suppressed simply because they weren't the ones that survived, uh, but not because that they were bad. We actually, you know, it's funny, it, it makes a connection to uh, the funding question that we talked about relating to Moshe House a few weeks ago, where, where we said, like, you know, just because something is a great idea doesn't necessarily mean it's going to also figure out all of its funding. And if its funding doesn't right. work out, then you're going to think it wasn't a great idea or it didn't make it or whatever because of the idea. But there's all kinds of random circumstances that, that cause that. And so in this case, we have this really strong part of Judaism that, that was lost in the destruction of the Northern Kingdom, you know, almost 3,000 years ago. But yet... I think that that strain has not been lost, that it actually has played a role over that entire 3,000 year period. And in different times, it becomes more dominant and in different times, it becomes more forgotten. So, so I read the book uh, myself and, and with, once again, without spoiling, I really was struck by the success with which um, Brandis gives us a really coherent thoughtful narrative from from a perspective that is just so drastically different from what the Bible does. And and for folks that are trying to envision what that is, we can't we can't explain too much because once again we're not giving away all all of the details of what happens. But um I think it actually reminded me in certain ways of of the red tent, which is also from St. Martin's Press, by the way, and and which which does a really interesting and important thing by elevating the voices of some of the women in the in the stories that we otherwise think of as the story of Jacob the story of uh Simeon and, and Levi as as they sack uh the city of Shechem etc etc et and elevating the voices of Sadina and even Leah and Rachel etc and i think that we've seen how how incredible an impact that book made in the US and I really do think it's possible that this could do the same thing and and most importantly because it's because there have been now multiple of these accounts that are telling stories of the Bible from different perspectives I'm I'm curious if if this could conceivably lead to an entire new way of approaching the text of the Bible where where it's not that we accept what's there as the capital T truth, even if we don't accept it as historically true, but as like the correct Jewish narrative and other ones are, you know, interesting thoughts, but, but separate. But in fact, that these new narratives might be in and of themselves, 
another version equally worthwhile equally worth engaging with i'm curious if you have thoughts on that and if you know we we would benefit from seeing other kinds of biblical stories from the perspectives of those who weren't the victors i think that the power of art to shape thinking is enormous and and i would say something that we are insufficiently attentive to in the jewish world today at least you know and i i think for me the first way to understand the Bible is as the piece of art that shaped the Jewish future. And the way that I read the book is to say, but this way that is described in the book might be the way that it really was. And that that piece of art never got written, uh, right? The, the, the piece of art that says this is the way that it really was let's turn that into a piece of art, didn't get written. And in, instead what got written was the piece of art that said, let's change it. Um, now, I don't know if, if that matters to people. Um, it matters to me though. It, it matters to me even just knowing that there's a possibility that these stories that we know so well actually happened a different way. And one of the ways in which I think is clearest that all of these stories happen differently than the way they're described or might have happened differently than the way they're described is that they're all or, you know, there's some debate in scholarship, but most of them are written by men and from the perspective of men. And so even just the fact that the stories actually happened to women and men and um, might have been seen by women at the time in a different way. And if women had been in the powerful roles to shape the way society was going to see these stories and act on these stories, they may have told those stories very differently. They might have had a very different perspective, a very different sense of what happened, who was right, who was wrong, where things should have gone. And, and all of that has been lost or suppressed or incorporated in some way into the story that men told, but not necessarily incorporated in the way that women would have told it and used it. So even just to go back and recapture, even if it's essentially made up and it's fiction, uh, a, a woman's perspective on these stories for me is very powerful. And I think that's also what's going on in the Red Tent. And, and that's one reason why for me, the, these books are quite, um, quite related in an important way. Um, there's another connection that I want to draw to another book, which is the Da Vinci Code. And not in the sense that this is a, um, you know, thriller and has, uh, you know, that kind of uh, hunt or anything. It's not similar to the Da Vinci Code in a, in a lot of ways, but it is similar to the Da Vinci Code in one way that I think is important. And, and, and I'm going to spoil the Da Vinci Code a little. So if, no, if somebody's listening and uh, hasn't read the Da Vinci Code, maybe they should skip forward a minute or so. But one of the main ideas in the Da Vinci Code is that in Christianity, there were essentially two voices. Uh, the, and what, what's talked about there is the divine masculine and the divine feminine. And, and the idea is that the divine feminine is often a suppressed or not dominant voice in Christianity. And, and yet there are these people that sort of guard its flame and that every once in a while it's, it's needed or it can come back in. And what was powerful to me about that was that the idea that these two voices are always there. They may not always be loud, but they're always there. And of course, the male and the female voices are always there in, in every dimension of the world. And, and, and often it's the female voice that's, that's quieted. I think that's in play here, too. But there's another piece that's also in play in Jewish uh, history and in, in Jewish 
mythology, Jewish past, whatever we want to call it, memory, which is the voice of the Northern Kingdom and the voice of the Southern Kingdom. Whether we see those voices as um, historical voices of two different kingdoms, whether we see that metaphorically, as I think the book does in, in some ways, that the uh, Northern Kingdom is, is a more... Um, feminine voice in the sense that it's multivocal, it's it's very pro-pluralism, uh, it has all kinds of dimensions that I think are often aligned to what people understand to be a woman's voice. And the Southern Kingdom, which is much more univocal, uh, fundamentalistic, uh, centralizing, powerful, and approving of power, the use of power in that way. So metaphorically, I think they do track to the masculine and the feminine uh, as well. But even if you put that part aside, it's just that we have two strains of our history. And I think that whether we call it the Northern Kingdom or the Southern Kingdom, or we call it um, fundamentalism versus pluralism, or whatever we want to call it, there are times in history when one voice is louder than the other. And I think this is true not only in Jewish history, but, but across all uh, civilizations, that it, it's generally the voice, the, the voice of the, the power, the centralizing, the dominant sort of voice that ends up kind of probably dictating history more often than the other. But maybe the other, when it comes in periodically, it's, it's a, it can be a very powerful, uh, a very powerful voice to sort of open our thinking more broadly in various ways. Right. Um, and it's funny, my, my mind flashed to a couple, a couple pop cultural kinds of kinds of references in contemporary life that I think sort of embody a similar kind of spirit to what Secret Book of Kings is trying to do. And one that I thought of initially is the is the Broadway show Wicked, which is in many ways trying to humanize trying to humanize and take a character who was the villain of the Wizard of Oz and and make them far more complex and interesting. Um, and I also think of a book that I read as like a second grader or third grader um, called The True Story of the Three Little Pigs. And it's the three little pigs, but the big bad wolf is not so big and bad. And it's actually from the wolf's perspective. Um, and the and, and it was an incredibly successful book. It came out in the mid 90s. Um, and so I, I, I really am reflecting on on sort of the magic of that phenomenon of that mechanism where we where we question the whole nature of sort of historical truth, or I guess those are fictional narratives, but the idea of one true narrative. I think it's really important, not just, as you indicated before, to think about maybe elements of the Northern narrative were more, quote unquote, true than the Southern Kingdom, but also to recognize, and I think this might be what Brandis is trying to do, that in fact, the whole notion of one historical truth is a misnomer. The idea that there really is a correct account of particular historical events that is the correct one and others are wrong, as opposed to the, the basic notion that by definition, every historical experience happens from multiple perspectives and therefore has a variety of different true accounts. I think we should wrestle with that question. And I think she opens us up to it in, in a really important new way. Yeah, I think that what you're saying is absolutely right. And, um, and one piece of it is that that's the power of a novel over, you know, any other kind of shorter writing, including the Bible, is that 
you're able to get a rich characterization too. And and so it's not like in this novel is so simplistic where, you know, Saul is the good guy and David is the bad guy. You know, I think she's um, drawing complex characters out of these people. And like all people, they have good qualities and bad qualities. And sometimes even a good quality may be good from a moral standpoint, but it's bad from a tactical standpoint. And it ultimately leads to characters' downfalls that they're, for example, too good. Really, you know, you're right. I mean, even if this novel and and any novel about Jewish historical periods or or mythological periods, even if it all it did was to kind of nuance the stories that are being told and 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 help us to understand that the characters are real human beings, or at the very least, even if they're fictional stories, that we are real human beings and and we have to relate to these stories and and learn from them. Absolutely. And I just wanted to hone in on another element of the book that I thought was a huge strength, which is that a lot of the major characters are are folks who are mentioned in the Bible, but maybe only once or or just very briefly and have almost no detail about them. But But what this book does is it elevates them and brings them into the story in a way that you figure they must have been. I mean, there, there were thousands of people and only in this society and only a select few were mentioned at all. So you figure if somebody was mentioned, they probably were an important figure one way or another. And this book takes that and really deepens these personalities in a way that I think is so thoughtful. And once again, it's not that I, I have any thought that how the how Secret Book of Kings ex, uh, expands on them is what they really were. We have no way of knowing, but I think that the value in that is so tangible to to take folks that otherwise would just be names in a list in a section of Chronicles or or Kings or whatever, and and make them real personalities. Um, I'm curious if you if you shared that thought that that was sort of a unique element of this book. Yeah, for sure. And and I think just to be clear, we're talking about some major characters in the book. But what's interesting to me is that these major characters in the book, it's not like they're just people on a list that she discovered the name on a list and made a story out of them. They're, they're characters who in the Bible, a few choice words are said about, often negative. Again, because the Bible is being told from the perspective of the House of David, the various enemies of the House of David are mentioned, and they tend to be mentioned very briefly in the Bible with a couple of uh, either words of criticism or sometimes words that say, and God sent this enemy in order to punish David or in order to put David through a trial or whatever the reason is. Sort of like saying, for example, that if you're writing a book from the perspective of the winner, then you're going to write off the losers as these kind of minor characters. They did something bad and we beat them and they they went away. And like you were talking about with Wicked, it's really fascinating to think about that story told from the perspective of the loser who doesn't actually think that he's wicked and, um, you know, was doing something bad. He actually had a reason for doing what he was doing. And to kind of get into that uh, in a deep way and understand that, it's just a fascinating endeavor. And so I think that these minor characters that she's turned into major characters are actually developed really correctly to the the viewpoint that they must have understood themselves to be doing what they were doing for good reasons. 
what about what if we actually um, accepted that, right? What you know, because if David, let's let's put it out there, for example, that if David really was a bad king, or you know, we don't have to paint him with that broader brush. We could say that David wasn't the greatest guy in the world. By the way, the Bible affirms that. I, I think that clearly, uh, you know, the story of David and Bathsheba, for example, you know, the, the Bible doesn't mm-hmm. even hide a lot of David's negative qualities. It just ultimately says, but on balance, he was good. Okay, fine. So let's look. Let's consider him basically an okay guy, um, but let's say beyond the Bathsheba story, there are some other things that he did wrong. And essentially, that's the perspective, or that's one way of looking at the perspective that, uh, that this book takes. And, and so really, my, my point is just to say, like, these are not random characters. Like, this, this, you know, one of the things that I love about this book so much is it's quite surgical in its decisions over which characters to emphasize and which characters to develop and how to develop them. And, and I think it's, a, it's an extremely learned book. And one of the things that is important for readers to know is that very little in this book is made up out of whole cloth. Just about everything, not dialogue and not every description, but but many of the pieces of the, the basic stories of the characters uh, either come out of the Bible itself, um, a, a verse that might be de-emphasized, often come out with, come from rabbinic tradition, uh, stories that, that are told about this that are a little different from the Bible, or like we've been talking about that they're kind of an implication, you know, like Wicked, an implication from the way that the story is told in the Bible that that if you would just spin it out and look at it from the other perspective, of, of course, this is what the character's motivations would be. Right. I had a, another thought because it's easy to look at this question and this story and say, okay, great. So there's multiple narratives of the Book of Kings and, and we could envision different kinds of realities having taken place millennia ago, et cetera, et cetera. But like, what's it matter to me as a, as a person in 2016 who's, who's not, for whom whether David was good or bad is not really a, a life or death kind of question. Um, and, and I was thinking about recent controversies in the U.S. Um, and specifically around the AP U.S. history exam. Um, there's been huge controversies, and also about just curricula in general. Um, there's been huge controversies in all sorts of different states, and even nationally when it comes to this AP U.S. history test, which is a national test that is an important placement. To, it's important that often counts for college credit for students who who get a certain score. Um, and And there are battles politically over, you know, how should we look at, say, the 1960s? Are portrayals of Vietnam War protesters as sort of neutral or even positive figures, to use a Jewish term, are those, are those portrayals kosher? Are they okay? Or is it more important to sort of tell a positive story of American leadership that downplays the extent of protest. I mean, th- that's one micro issue. There's There's been questions about how we portray slavery, the extent to which we ignore voices of color in American history. That's a huge issue. It, for me in Providence, there's been a great effort by students themselves to elevate ethnic studies and bring voices to the forefront that are not the ones that I certainly grew up learning about, which were almost all white and male. So I, I think that that it really does have some practical implications in terms of how we look at history. And because the reality is once history is in the past, it's, it's incumbent upon people in the present to preserve it however they preserve it. And in a certain sense, the story, uh, like even if the truth 
is different from the story we tell now. The story we tell now is all we have. So it becomes a form of reality. And that can be incredibly dangerous if it's different from what really happened or strays from a narrative that is important to preserve. It really requires us to think about why the past is important. Richard Elliott Friedman last week, he really wants to know what really happened, you know, and, and biblical archaeology and biblical scholarship is, is most interested in what actually happened and who really did what. But I think that art is different. I mean, I think that art is more about looking forward. That's a starting point. And, and I think about, you know, a lot of the discussion that's been going on over the last year about Hamilton as a work of art. And sometimes there's criticism of Hamilton in various ways that talk about its portrayal of history as wrong, or is it like whitewashing people who, whitewashing, so to speak, people who um, own slaves to have them played by African-American characters. But what I really think is most interesting about a work of art like Hamilton is, is almost that it resets history as beginning in 2015, right? And, it, and it's resetting mm. the mythic foundation of the history that starts in 2015 based, as based on this story. Because Hamilton, the musical, may well become the story that people know in a much deeper way than the real story of the founding. And the question can arise, well, but what if that's different from the way that it really was? But I, I want to say a couple of things. Number one is that I think that the story that we have in the Bible is different from the way that it really was. So already we're starting with a story as our foundation and not a history as our foundation. Now, some of us will find it interesting to then go back and imagine what the history might have been. I certainly find that interesting and fascinating. And I, I love the idea of thinking about what the history might have been and trying to find signs of what the history might have been from the, the story and from the text. But at the end of the day, to some extent, you have to admit that that's going to be largely speculative and 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 a form of fiction in its own right. And the story that we need may be a different story from the story that we've received. And if you believe that the story that we've received is a historical retelling that is kind of has total fidelity to what actually happened, then you would say, oh, that's deeply problematic. We can't do that. You know, but if you if you believe that the story that we've received was a story that was put together in its own time to serve a political purpose or, or, a, or a social purpose, then why can't we do that again today to serve our purposes? And one of the things that I'm trying to combat against in a way is that I feel like a lot of people who want to get creative with the Jewish material are often told by the people that are most you know, ensconced in the existing world of Jewish practice, of Jewish life, that what you're doing is, is wrong, it's not allowed, it's not authentic, it doesn't have fidelity to our past, it, you know, whatever. And and, and I think it's so important for people to be able to say, number one, you, what you're doing, the, you people that are involved in the way things have been for a while, what you're doing is, is wonderful, right? You, you should be allowed to do that. We're not saying you can't, but it doesn't actually have any more fidelity to the reality and to the, to the true history than what we're doing. So let's go all the way back to what we can all acknowledge are some of our oldest, most ancient stories. And I can show you how, you know, some of the things that you believe most strongly are really in question. And if that's the case, then you can't say to me that what I'm trying to do lacks fidelity to the past. And so like one, 
small example of, of a story in the book that I think is dramatic, uh, even though it doesn't necessarily mean all that much, um, and, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to talk about it, is the story that comes out of the, the story of David killing Goliath. And the Bible talks about how David killed Goliath with, you know, uh, a, you know, a stone and a slingshot and, and the small David was able to bring down this huge Goliath. And, you know, that's a major story in the Jewish tradition. Now, in the book, one of the things that happens is that there is some question about who killed Goliath. And there is another claim made in the book that a different guy killed Goliath. Now, I think a casual reader of this book might say, Jesus made that up. Like, where did that come from? But it actually, it comes from an explicit verse in the book of 2 Samuel that says that Elchanan, a guy named Elchanan, killed Goliath. The, and, and it's the same Goliath, because they say that Goliath from Gath. So it's the same guy. The Bible has two different characters that are said to have killed him. One is David and the other is Elchanan. And what's the true story? The bottom line is that we don't know. First of all, we don't know if the story is true at all. But second of all, even within the Bible itself, it doesn't make clear who the Bible thinks actually killed Goliath. So there's all kinds of stories that can come out of that. You know, one is it was really Elchanan, but David took credit for it. It could be that they were working together. It could be, you know, that um, there was a scribal error and actually, you know, some of the English translations mistranslate the line about Elchanan and add in that he killed the brother of Goliath, but that is in no way in the Hebrew text. <laughs> and so there are all kinds of, you know, there's midrashes that can be told and, and there's all kinds of things that can be kind of struggled with about this, but that's an example. And we talked about, you know, with Richard Elliott Friedman last week, that this is common in the Bible, that these stories are told in different ways, you know, twice. And the Bible doesn't necessarily see a problem with putting out both uh, contradictory stories. And, and actually, you know, that puts out one last idea that I, I kind of wanted to put out there about our tradition, which is that I think that most Jews who know about the Talmud kind of see as a point of pride about the Talmud that it preserves the minority opinion, you know, and that the Talmud isn't just a law book that says, do this, do this, do this, do this. The Talmud records the various conversations, the various arguments that the rabbis had about the right thing to do. Generally doesn't say in the Talmud which is the winner. It's often implied that it's clear that this is the way that we're going to go forward, but it often but it always, you know, kind of preserves the minority opinion and, and Jews tend to be very proud of that. Well, I think that that isn't an, is not an invention of the Talmud. That is a, a tradition that the rabbis inherited because the Bible preserves those conflicting stories. And the Bible doesn't see this need to say, oh, this is the most authentic and this is not. The Bible will, will just put them right next to each other. And so what I would say to folks who say, you know, oh, the, this is, the Bible is definitive and, you know, what you're trying to suggest isn't authentic and isn't right, is like, read the Bible a little closer. So you, you got me thinking about, so you mentioned Midrash and you know, I, I've explored Midrash a little bit, and one piece that's on occasion frustrated me about it and on occasion actually been been a good thing, if you ask me, is that, I mean, most of the classical Midrashim that I'm familiar with, at least, they seem to be doing their very best to make the text make sense and to take us from a place of confusion to a place of settledness, contentness. And more than that, it's meant to elevate those who the text seems to see as positive characters, even if they have some flaws in the original text, and and denigrate those who are negative characters. And sort of in doing so, 
create this bipolar situation where the good characters are extra good and the bad characters are extra bad. I've always struggled with that because I do love complexity. And it, and it made me think of a sentence I read recently in an article on Lilith.org, Lilith Magazine, that, that I really think is one of the most important sentences I've read in a long time. Um, the article was by Amelia Dornbush, and it says, I've come to see Judaism as a relationship with, rather than adherence to, a given set of texts, religious practices, histories, etc., etc. And I think what we're basically getting at is the second you depart from a paradigm where what's most is important is to adhere to the rules of the Bible, even the, the stories of the Bible, the, the positive characters, the negative characters, etc. Once that's not the point and all that matters is having a relationship with those texts, then a retelling of the story of David and Saul from a perspective that totally reverses who you think is good and bad in a variety of ways is actually not heretical. It, it like it, It's not problematic from, from a standpoint of Judaism as relationship with. It's only problematic from a standpoint of Judaism as adherence to. And to me, that's so empowering. It, it means that, that all of a sudden... It's okay for me to actually dislike some characters in, in Bible, in rabbinic text, wherever, in the same way that I would dislike characters in a novel I'm reading or dislike historical figures that are part of, say, America, which is a country that I still love and care deeply about, even though I harshly criticize many, many of its historical and present leaders. So I think that what we get from this is, is a really embodied sense that it is Jewish to relate to this text, uh, even from an entirely different point of view, and that maybe that's even the, the whole point. Maybe, maybe the whole point is for us to do just that and think about what our relationship is, forgetting what the text's biases are, what Yoki Brandis's biases are, what anybody's like, figuring out where we are in this whole question. Uh, maybe that's what we're, what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think it's a really great perspective and, and a great point. I mean, and I, I just, it really, it makes me more sad than anything else to to imagine even a, a different reading, you know, like it, it makes me sad to imagine that those of us who, who sit here in, in America in the 21st century and, you know, we can all identify the flaws of leaders who we like and we can probably identify some virtues of the leaders who we don't like. But, you know, humans have been humans forever. In the scheme of, of evolution, humans have not been around for very long. And and I think that, by the way, in my view, that's one of the reasons why I think ancient wisdom is, is worthwhile, because ancient wisdom really isn't all that ancient uh, in terms of, of the length of the human story. And, and I think that human beings have been the same uh, more or less for a long time. And I think that wise people 3,000 years ago understood human beings uh, just as deeply as wise people do today, and, and maybe even more deeply for various reasons. So I think that to imagine that human beings sitting around in, uh, you know, 3,000 years ago looking at King David wouldn't have seen him as a complex person who, you know, maybe on balance, I'm, I'm pro-David, but I can certainly see all of his flaws. Why should that have been any different from the way that people look at Barack Obama that way um, and, and vice versa? So I think that then when we have a way of looking at these stories from our time where we're supposed to see these characters as largely simple characters who are either good or bad and, you know, 
may have went wrong once or twice, like with David and Bathsheba, but but that was like their only mistake that they ever made. When that's not even the story that the Bible is really telling, it, it just seems like we're tragically missing the point. And and like you say, I think that the point is something like we have this multivocal tradition that we are continuing to build on, and we should be building a multivocal tradition on top of that multivocal tradition. Or at the very least, we have a multivocal tradition that gives us all uh, different points of connection to it, that some of which will speak to different people at different times. It's funny, you, you, you said a sentence, um, you, you mentioned, give us all different points of connection. And, and my ears heard it initially as give a Saul <laughs> different points of connection, hmm. um, which I just thought was maybe a funny little English drash. I don't know. But, uh-huh. but yeah, um, as we wrap up, is, is there anything else about the book that you wanted to make sure that our listeners know about as they consider hopefully going ahead and purchasing it or getting it for their Kindle? Yeah, you know, I would say this about both books that we've talked about in the last two weeks, um, Who Wrote the Bible and The Secret Book of Kings. I think that both of them, you can sit down and read them and have a wonderful experience. And they're worth reading in their own right. But both books are so vastly more enriched if you read them and you get really interested in the material and then you go and you really start to read the Bible and to see, you know, I want to see these things that are being talked about in context. And, um, you know, I want to understand and I want to start to take an interest in this and, and delve deeply into it. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, becoming a biblical scholar. I'm talking about, you know, going to audible.com and, and downloading a course on, on the Bible or something. And so then start looking at the strands and start making connections like you were making to Wicked and, you know, I was making to Hamilton. I mean, I think there's so many ways in which we essentially accept this point of view for just about everything else in our lives, um, whether that's America or our profession or whatever, where we accept and understand that there's a lot of possibilities, that there's a room for tremendous creativity, that there's also respect for what comes in the past, but but also that there's a role for originality. You know, I think of the values of, of academia and the university, which right, are both scholarship and deep understanding of what else has come before us and originality. You can't get tenure without, without both of them. If you're not making an original contribution, you don't get tenure in, in academia. And I think that's largely true in most professions w- that are being done at, at a high level. And so I think that so many of our listeners are people who embody these values in themselves and yet have been told a story about how that's not the right attitude that we're supposed to come at Judaism with and, and, and at our materials with. And so I really think that for me, you know, I mean, with who wrote the Bible 30 years ago and with the secret book of Kings just in the last few years, like those bookend for me, this experience that, that I've had of saying, you know, that something that I grew up seeing in a certain way. And when I rejected that way, would have walked away from altogether and said, okay, I guess it's just not relevant for us. You know, instead could get a a real appreciation for this as a rich treasure trove of material to remix in a different way. And actually, I guess I would say the secret book of Kings for me is an example of what that remixing process could, could look like. And, and it happens to be an example in the world of art, but One of the reasons why I'm so interested in this section that we're doing now on art 
is because, as I hope we'll, we'll look at in the weeks ahead, I'm really fascinated by this idea of Judaism itself as a material of art, you know, and that what we are seeing in some of the innovators that we're talking about and some of the innovation perspectives that we're talking about is, is really nothing more, nothing less than coming to Judaism with the sensibility of an artist. And so to look at an actual piece of art, in this case, a novel, and to see how that translated itself into a work of art that we see as a conventional work of art, I hope metaphorically we can say, well, what would Judaism look like? What would a Jewish practice look like if it were similarly remixed and transformed in the way that Yochi Brandis has done with the stories of the books of Samuel and Kings? Wow. Well, thank you, uh, Dan, for coming on to the show. It's been an honor having you. Great to be here. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, as always, we want to close out our show by letting you know the various ways that you can be in touch with us. And to start out, you can always head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. You can check out our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always email us at dan at nextjewishfuture.org and lex at nextjewishfuture.org. And this episode, we want to remind you that The Secret Book of Kings by Yoki Brandis, with assistance translating from our very own Dan Liebenson, is available from St. Martin's Press. You can find it on Amazon, but you can also find it by going to the official website, secretbookofkings.com. So we encourage you to go ahead and do that. Please let us know what you think of the book and what you think of our podcast in general. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>